Well, good morning, Central. Good morning. Good morning. Really good to be here. Just want to uh, um, introduce uh, um, and sort of recap our series this morning and also the topic for today. Uh, this, today's topic, Is Jesus the Only Way? It's a summary of the fifth most asked question to the question that we posed to you a couple of months ago. What are the things that challenge your faith? So fifth, ba- uh, fifth from the top was uh, the question about, is Jesus the only way? Is there only one way to heaven, so to speak, one religion? So we chose the top six to address from the pulpit. Others are being addressed uh, in blogs on our website. So uh, this is number five in our series, Help My Unbelief, which is based on the biblical account of the father who brought his boy to Jesus, a boy who was plagued with an evil spirit. And he brought him to Jesus and, and he said to Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus said, if you can, And then the father exclaimed, I do believe, help my unbelief. And many of us um, have been in that position, right, over the years. It's hard to believe certain things, particularly about Jesus or about faith. Maybe some of you are in that position right now, questions, doubts, maybe skeptical. And you know what, if this is you, you're not alone. You're not the first. (laughs) Your questions and your doubts are welcomed. They are normal. Even John the Baptist, who grew up with Jesus, pointed people to Jesus, proclaimed the kingdom of God and repentance. After all of that, John the Baptist went to prison. One day his disciples came to visit him and he sent his disciples back to Jesus and said to him, you know, tell us, are you the one? (laughs) Are you the one? Or should we expect someone else? Even John the Baptist doubted at a certain point in his life and Jesus didn't uh, chastise him for that. He just sent John's disciples back and said, well, what do you see? What do you hear? Make a decision. Some of Jesus' own disciples who spent three full years with him, um, we're going to look at some today. Thomas, Philip, they doubted. They asked questions. Thomas, even after the resurrection of Christ, when Peter and John came back and said, hey, we've seen Jesus. He's alive. Thomas said, "I I won't believe it unless I can put my hands in his side and his hands see the nail scars. If he really is alive, I need to see it with my own eyes. So they doubted. Other people don't struggle this way. I have not been much of a doubter myself. Uh, Sometimes uh, a little bit of a rebel. Sometimes resistant, but not really doubting. Uh, I don't know if anybody identifies with that, but if this, this is you, you know, you're in good company as well. I think about the centurion in Matthew chapter 8, whose servant lay ill, And he went to Jesus, knowing Jesus could heal him, and he said, would you do this for my servant? And Jesus said, well, I will come over as soon as I can. And the centurion said, no, there's no need to do that. I understand authority, because I have people under authority as well. He goes, I just tell them to do this, and they do it. You don't need to come to my house. All you need to do, Jesus, is say the word. And Jesus goes, whoa, I have not seen faith like this even in Israel. And he said, go, it'll be done, just as you believed it would. And the centurion went home and and his servant was healed. Then there's the two blind men that came to Jesus. They were seeking healing. They said to Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. And, uh, And the first question Jesus posed to them was, do you believe that I am able to do this? And without hesitation, they said, yes, Lord. And it is said, it'll be done according to your faith. Go wash in the pool and you will be able to see. 
So there's kind of two sides. There's those who doubt and those who just unreservedly say, yes, Lord, we believe. So I have three goals for this morning. If you're sort of in the camp where you're a bit skeptical, you are doubting, I want to help you this morning in your unbelief, particularly about Jesus, to give you a reason to believe and to instill in you through the Holy Spirit the ability, the confidence to say, yes, Lord. (laughs) For those of you this morning who maybe like the centurion or those two blind men, I just, my goal today for you is to strengthen your faith, even just a little bit to equip you to be able to give answers to people when they ask you for the reason, for the hope that is within you, because people do ask us questions. To do that with gentleness and respect, it's my goal. But my goal for all of us today is um, also to open the door to further conversation because we are not even going to come close to even scratching the surface this morning. In fact, this message is probably, for some of you, going to raise more questions than it will give you answers. It will give you answers, but it'll raise questions. It'll, want, it'll force you to explore further, and that's good. So um, I, I do like going out for coffee, so you will just have to invite me to do that so we can continue to talk. I don't mind. Uh, and uh, maybe we'll, we will also you know, create other forums for people to gather in addition to the blogs and the websites, in order to debate and to ask questions. I think it would be a good thing to do that. So I'm going to you know, try my best this morning to answer this question that's before us, is Jesus the only way, without throwing a ton of scripture at you. But you need to understand that I am not, um, like some of the guest speakers we've had, I'm not an apologist, I'm not a philosopher. Uh, I'm a pretty simple guy, a bit of a redneck, a bit of a rebel at times, sometimes resistant but not doubting. But this is, this is where I'm at. I love God. I love his word. And I love, my desire is to see people come to faith in Christ. And I want to help us, all of us, grow in our faith. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it my best shot, okay? Here we go. I want to challenge right off the top a couple of presuppositions. Stay with me because this does get a little heavier a little heavy at the beginning, and we're going to get into, ease into this, okay? So the first presupposition is this. Being right, or maybe I should say insisting on being right, or presuming to be right, is arrogant. The pushback against Christians has always been that it is arrogant to say that Jesus is the only way, that there is only one way to God, one path to heaven, only one way to be saved. How can you be right and everyone else be wrong? It's always been this way, right from day one. The first Christians lived in a culture where saying that Jesus was the only way did not go over very well. They were met with a lot of resistance. They grew out, they were, their, their faith was emerging amidst a strong monotheistic Judaism in the, in the middle of, a, of an empire that was ruled by an emperor who was considered as God. And so for and also a Greek culture and influence all around them that embraced many gods, polytheistic. And so for them to declare Jesus Christ is the only way was met with trouble, with resistance. In fact, in many times, many cases, it was the the defining line between life and death because if Caesar is considered God, how can you say that Jesus is and your, your neck literally was on the line? And even though in our culture we don't, uh, aren't met with the same kind of persecution and opposition, I think 
that it's only gotten worse from there because the list of options and religions and faiths is just never ending. Just Google world religions and the list that comes out, it just boggles your mind. So I found um, in, in this whole thing about the question of being right, as I was reading um, the first chapter of Timothy Keller's book, The Reason for God, I found it quite helpful. This is a, a resource that we have available for sale. You can also borrow it from our library and read it. In his first chapter, um, he addresses this very statement. It is arrogant to insist your religion is right and to convert others to it. I'm going to quote from him rather extensively, so you need to pay attention to this, because I am not a Timothy Keller kind of guy, so I, I kind of have to follow this closely as well. The noted religion scholar John Hick has written that once you become aware that there are many other equally intelligent and good people in the world who hold different beliefs from you, and that you will not be able to convince them otherwise, then it is arrogant for you to continue to try to convert them or to hold your view to be the superior truth. Once again, there is an inherent contradiction. Most people in the world don't hold to John Hicks' view that all religions are equally valid, and many of them are equally as good and intelligent as he is, and unlikely to change their views. That would make the statement, all religious claims, uh, that would make the statement, quote, all religious claims to have a better view of things are arrogant and wrong, to be, on its own terms, arrogant and wrong. Many say that it is ethnocentric to claim that our religion is superior to others. Yet isn't that the very, is, yet isn't that very statement ethnocentric? Most non-Western cultures have no problem saying that their culture and religion is best. The idea that it is wrong to do so is deeply rooted in Western traditions and self, of self-criticism and individualism. To charge others with the sin of ethnocentrism is really a way of saying our culture's approach to other cultures is superior to yours. We are then doing the very thing we forbid others to do. The historian C. John Somerville has pointed out that, quote, a religion can be judged only on the basis of another religion, end of quote. You can't evaluate a religion except on the basis of some ethical criteria that, is, that in the end amounts to your own religious stance. By now, the fatal flaw in this approach to religion in general and to Christianity in particular should be obvious. Skeptics believe that any exclusive claims to a superior knowledge of spiritual reality cannot be true. But this objection is itself a religious belief. It assumes God is unknowable, or that God is loving but not wrathful, or that God is an impersonal force rather than a person who speaks in Scripture. All of these are unprovable faith assumptions. In addition, their proponents believe that they have a superior way to view things. They believe the world would be a better place if everyone dropped the traditional religious views of God and truth and adopted their views. Therefore, their view is also an exclusive claim about the nature of spiritual reality. If all such views are to be discouraged, this one should be as well. If it is not narrow to hold this view, then there is nothing inherently narrow about holding to a traditional religious belief. 
So Mark Lilla, who's a professor at the University of Chicago, spoke to a bright young student at Wharton Business School who, to Lilla's bafflement, had gone forward at a Billy Graham crusade to give his life to Christ. Lilla writes, I wanted to cast doubt on the step he was about to make to help him see that there are other ways to live, other ways to seek knowledge, love, even self-transformation. I wanted to convince him his dignity depended on maintaining a free, skeptical attitude towards doctrine. I wanted to save him. Doubt, and then this author, this same guy who's just said that, says this, doubt, like faith, has to be learned. It's a skill. But the curious thing about skepticism is that its adherents, ancient and modern, have so often been proselytizers. In reading them, I've often wanted to ask, why do you care? Their skepticism offers no good answer to that question, and I don't have one myself, coming from a skeptic. So then Keller goes on to say, Lilla's wise self-knowledge reveals his doubts about Christianity to be a learned alternate faith. He believes that the individual's dignity as a human rests on doctrinal skepticism, which is, of course, an article of faith. As he admits, he can't avoid believing that it would be better for people if they adopted his beliefs about reality and human dignity rather than Billy Graham's. Then Keller concludes the section this way. It is no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than to claim that one way to think about all religions, namely that all are equal, is right. We are all exclusive in our beliefs about religion, but in different ways. I love that because what it does is it levels the playing field and it allows Christians to at least enter the dialogue about our faith and from there to present solid evidence that Christianity is true, it is right, it is the only way. So we do need to challenge the presupposition that insisting on being right is arrogant. It's not. <laughs> Secondly, I want to challenge another presupposition, in that, and, and Keller already alluded to this, that exclusivity is evil. It's a bad thing. In our culture, not having an option is viewed as largely negative, right? Like how many of you just like to keep your options open? Some of you have probably done that this afternoon. You know, you're not going to commit to go there. You're not going to commit to that. I have several options of things I'd like to do this afternoon, so I'm just keeping them open. We'll see what happens, right? So, so exclusivity is negative. Well, I guess I'd have no other option. If plan A doesn't work, I'll just go to plan B. I guess I'm stuck with this now. You know, we love our options. This makes Christianity a really tough sell because the list, as I said before, of world religions or faiths is so long. There's so many options. But we need to view exclusivity a little differently. And I think Pastor Matt already talked about this, but too many options is, in fact, debilitating and confusing. How many of you have ever been in a restaurant that has a 12-page menu? I hate those places because I just want to try it all. It's debilitating. It takes me like an hour to decide what I want let alone shopping for a car or a cell phone or a computer or a, a cable package for a television or home renovations. I mean, we've got Rona, Home Hardware, Canadian Tire, Home Depot, Canex, Windsor Plywood. Whew, where do I go? Okay, so I finally choose 
Home Depot. Well, I go into Home Depot and the first thing I see is a hundred different kinds of flooring. Insurance, investments, vacation destinations. Oh, the options are endless. So you choose a cruise. Now within a cruise, you have options upon options upon options once you get on the ship. And then there's religion. How does one choose I think that keeping it simple and exclusive is, in fact, desirable. It's special, it's unique, it's valuable. I mean, what's the, what, what's the first thing? You know, you watch these shows. We just did the Food Network thing for volunteer appreciation. I love watching the Food Network, right? I'm, I'm a foodie, right? What's the first thing when you watch these things like restaurant makeover? You know, you've got uh, Gordon Ramsay or Robert Irvine or whatever. They come into a restaurant that's failing. Aside from giving it, you know, a bit of a facelift cosmetically, the first thing they zero in on is that menu. And they pair it way back to the basics. They simplify. Less is more. Quality instead of quantity is better. I mean, don't you feel special when you buy something that is exclusive only to the bay? (laughs) Or I can only get this at Costco and nowhere else? It's exclusive. That custom product that I can only get from that store that no one else has is special. You know, there's something extraordinary about being the only one, the only source, the only way. Mr. Wonderful, Kevin O'Leary on Shark Tank, he calls it being proprietary. And you'll often hear Mr. Wonderful on Shark Tank say, what's to keep me from replicating what you do and knocking you off the shelf and crushing you like the cockroach that you are. (laughs) Right? In other words, is this the only way that it can be done? If it's not, if it's not exclusive, if it's not proprietary, it's of little value. So to consider that God made only one way, just consider it, is in fact special, unique, valuable. It really is. I think that to believe that uh, all, you know, to, to say that all religions, all faiths are the way is in fact more incredulous, more unbelievable than to claim the exclusivity of Christianity. I look at it the other way. But herein lies the problem for many people. Exclusivity has been so abused making it so easy to reject. So think about it in the industrial world. Technology. You have an exclusive product. Well, guess what the manufacturer gets to do? They get to charge you whatever they want because they know that it's the only thing. Doesn't that just drive you crazy? Makes me mad. So my son, he's got a nice car. He wanted to put a nice stereo in it like every teenager wants, right? So, okay, so he goes and buys the stereo, couldn't afford a new one, so he buys a second-hand one, like on Craigslist or whatever. I was shaking my head. I said, first mistake, man. You don't buy anything used. This thing is junk. It's not going to work. Well, he disregards my advice. He buys it. He goes to an installer. Thank goodness he didn't rip the car apart himself. He actually paid good money to have an installer put it in professionally. It looked great. The job was well done. He comes home. He wants to try out his new stereo, so he takes his 
iPod cable, he plugs it into the USB, plugs it into his iPod, doesn't work. And I said, see, I told you so. You shouldn't have done that, you know, you schmuck. What are you doing? So, um, so we go to the Internet, like all good people do. We Google it. This stereo, this particular iPod, this generation, whatever it is. And after a lot of digging, we finally come to the fact that this particular stereo manufacturer makes the only cable that works with that iPod. So, now more research. Where do you find this cable? So we finally found one, went and bought it, plugged it in. Beautiful. Stereo is awesome. That thing is loud with some good bass. And I had to eat humble pie. <laughs> but you see, exclusivity is, 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 it can be abused because now you pay twice for that cable what you could have done with any other cable. Religion is no different. The abuse in religion is, is more devastating, not just financially. Religions use, you know, they, they abuse people financially, but they abuse them spiritually, emotionally, and physically. Look at what exclusivity in religion has done throughout the ages, all the way from the Crusaders to the current day jihadists and everything in between. Abortion clinics getting bombed up, people being murdered. Uh, Blaise Pascal, who is a, a French mathematician, physicist, writer, and Christian philosopher. He, he, he died way too young. He was in his late 30s. He lived in the 1600s. He said this, Men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. Ouch. That hurts. But it's true. I'm going to come back to that later. So those are a few presuppositions we need to challenge. Uh, we also need to confirm some other ones, and this is where we're going now. Is Jesus the only way? Must be built on some doctrinal and faith positions or presuppositions. I'm going to talk about three this morning. The first is the authority of Scripture. Everything that we believe, including is Jesus the only way, must be based on something, and one of them is the authority of Scripture. Is God's word true? Is it inerrant? Is it the word of God? Jeff Bucknam, who's the lead pastor at Northview Community Church in Abbotsford, did a great job with this at our annual uh, uh, denominational convention in May at South Langley uh, Community Church. And uh, he, he, gave an, he talked about sexuality in our culture, particularly homosexuality, and he also based his teaching on the premise, on the doctrine of the authority of Scripture, did an excellent job uh, with the interpretation of the word of this word, theonustos, uh, uh, theonustos, which is a word in Second Timothy chapter three. I'm going to read a couple of verses for you, okay? Second Timothy three verses sixteen and seventeen says, "All Scripture is theonustos, God breathed." And it is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be the man or the woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Theonustos, the very breath of God, translated God breathed, given by God, breathed out by God. What we hold in our hands in church on Sunday is what God has said. These are not our ideas, my ideas, but they are his very words. 
Peter also verifies this. First Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, above all, he said, above all. That's why the word of God is so important, because why talk about the rest? Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Spirit there is pneuma, breath, wind. The very breath of God, breathed out, written down by men, but not their words, given to us as the authoritative, inerrant, inspired word of God. Now you say to yourself, fine, you're reading from Scripture. I need evidence. I need a little bit of empirical proof. Well, I tell you, there's lots of it. But I just want to go to uh, one thing. This is a chart that actually Pastor Matt and I discussed this week. It's very cool. Um, I forget the name of the book that it came from. You can ask me for it later if you're interested. But it's a little chart about ancient writings around the time of the New Testament. Some actually going all the way back to 850 B.C., and then moving forward from there, 450, 440, 380, 350, 60 BC, that's Caesar, uh, 50 BC, Catalyst, 10 BC, Livy. Then you've got uh, Tacitus, AD 100, the New Testament, uh, AD 60. The first uh, uh, New Testament writings occurred around AD 60, 30 years or so after Jesus died. Um, and by the way, some of the authors on the list are people like Herm, uh, Homer, uh, Herodotus, Plato, Aristotle. Have you ever heard any of these guys? All right. So people that say, ah, uh, the Bible is not true, it's not real, whatever, they discount that. Have no problem saying Aristotle, you know. You quote him a lot in university and Plato and things like that. Okay, so Plato, for example, written 380 B.C., the earliest copy of Plato's writings occurred at around A.D. 900. That is a span of 1,300 years. Okay, so the time span between um, a lot of these things, between the date that these ancient writings occurred and the first copies that appeared on the scene are anywhere from 950 to 1,600 years time span. The New Testament, actually... Tacitus, uh, yeah, thousand-year time span with him. Uh, Aristotle wrote in 350 B.C., first copy, 1100, 1400-year time span, okay? The New Testament started writing at around A.D. 60. The earliest copies, around A.D. 130. 70 to 100 years, the first copies of the New Testament started showing up. Now, the number of copies. Homer... We don't even know when the earliest copy of his writings occurred, but there are 643 of them available. Plato, there are seven copies. Um, Aristotle, five copies. In fact, there's not even enough copies of these writers to reconstruct the original in its entirety, making its accuracy questionable. Right? The Bible... So the, the number of copies in this whole list range from 5 to 20. The most is all in a class all of its own, Homer 643. The New Testament, how many copies do you think there were? There are 14,000. 14,000. At an accuracy of 99.5%. 
the copies are 99.5% accurate based on the original writings which were started to be copied 70 to 100 years after they were written. And the errors in the copies of the originals are so minor that they make really no difference to the meaning of the text. Sometimes there's a comma missing, a little bit of a spelling error. Once in a while, a word is missing, but not ones that would cast doubt on what the author meant in the very original writing. Now, we could go on about this kind of stuff forever, but I just want to say that there's lots of evidence to the credibility and the authority of the scriptures. Here's where I want to interject, interject our text for this morning, John chapter 14. John 14, verses 1 through 11, says this. Jesus speaking, he said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. If we come to accept that the Holy Scriptures are the inspired, inerrant Word of God, and Jesus claims, and the witness of the apostles, and the witness of the Old Testament within Scripture, that, that, uh, that Jesus is, in fact, very God. I mean, Jesus here is saying, hey, guys, I, I am God. I'm, I'm Him. You don't need to see the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen Him. If we in fact believe that Jesus is very God who revealed himself to mankind in the form of human flesh, then we must accept that Jesus is the only way as he said he is. Now one of the greatest thinkers, uh, in fact, intellectual, one of, the, one of the most astute intellectual thinkers and influencers of his time, really spilling over into our time because it's so close, C.S. Lewis, who was born in 1898, lived to 1963, taught at Oxford, taught at Cambridge. Uh, C.S. Lewis, Lewis was an atheist until the age of 31 when he converted to theism uh, and finally came to the, uh, to the realization that yes, there is a God. Two years later became a Christian and said, okay, yes, there is a God and Jesus is God. <laughs> a Christian. He wrote this in Mere Christianity. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. 
That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says that he's a poached egg (laughs) or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. Beloved. And this is what the apostles based their testimony on. I want to read for you a little bit from the book of Acts, just one place out of many, where the deity of Christ is, uh, is affirmed by the apostles who witnessed the resurrection, by the way. I'm going to come back to that. But Peter, in Acts 4, verse said this, then, th- then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Then Peter says this, listen carefully. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. In other words, Jesus, yeah, he's the only way. But you say, I can't accept that the Bible is true or that Jesus is God when I don't even believe, you know, that Jesus even exists. I mean, you're reading this again from Scripture. So how do we really know that Jesus was an actual person who even walked the earth? Well, I tell you, the evidence regarding, if the evidence regarding the reliability of Scripture is not enough to prove the existence and the deity of Christ, there's plenty of evidence to support his existence and also his death and his resurrection from very credible non-Christian scholars. Non-Christians. Josephus, who lived from 37 to 100. Uh, He was born Joseph ben Matayahu, a Jew. He was a first century Romano-Jewish scholar, historian, hagiographer, which means a person who studies historical religious figures in particular. Not a Christian, he confirmed in, in, in several of his writings, but the most important is Testimonium uh, Flavianum, that Jesus, he confirmed that Jesus was an actual person. Remember, this is a, a, a secular uh, historical scholar. He confirmed that Jesus was an actual person who lived and died by crucifixion at the hands of Pilate, without a doubt. Josephus is confirmed by writers and scholars in following centuries, Eusebius, Origen. Current-day scholar Bart Ehrman, who, who teaches currently at the University of North Carolina, he, he, he's a Christian scholar who turned liberal, who eventually turned um, agnostic, who, interestingly enough, ironically, is a professor of New Testament studies at the University of North Carolina, in the areas of history and textual criticism, he wrote a book 
which has been supported by scholars from Princeton, Harvard, and Yale. Secular book. The, the, the book is called Did Jesus Exist? The Historical Argument for Jesus of Nazareth. And he proves uh, scholarly, secular work that Jesus, yes, he was a person who actually existed. Interestingly enough, where he stumbles is at the point of the resurrection of Christ. We'll get back to that later too. Third thing I want to talk about, we've got the authority of scriptures, the deity and the existence of Christ. And then I also want to talk about this. It's called, number three, it's called faith for a reason. <laughs> we, we, we have to build upon this, faith. John 14 our text for this morning begins this way. Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. And what does he say? Trust in God. Trust also in me. I think that this is the determining factor for a lot of people. You see, faith is made up of three things. Faith is made up of knowledge, belief, and trust. The three of them go together. The disciples, Thomas and Philip, they had the knowledge. Jesus was telling them things. They had the belief. They saw things. They heard things from other people, just like John the Baptist. But they just couldn't get to that trust factor. And that's why Jesus started with them. Guys, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Ultimately, it comes down to a matter of faith particularly the issue of trust. You know, it's amazing how, to me how people can put their faith in a chair more easily than they can in a God whom Scripture says loves them, died for them, forgave them, and wants to give them eternal life. I mean, I can believe that the chair that you're sitting in will hold me up because I can see that it's holding you up. I can study that chair. I can find the manufacturer of that chair and I can get the manual for that chair, the owner's manual for that chair and figure out how it's made. I can read about the chair. But for myself, I just don't know if that chair will actually hold me up until I sit in it. And friends, that's trust which is a huge element of faith. We can have all the knowledge in the world. We can even believe something, but ultimately come down to a matter of trust. You see, we come to know things, we come to know things, particularly God, in two ways. We know propositionally, that is a set of thought truths, the knowledge, even the belief, but then we come to know personally, a personal encounter with Jesus Christ with the Holy Spirit. Once again, I want to quote Pascal. He said, Faith is different from proof. The latter proof is human. The former is a gift from God. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. You see, salvation has two parts. There's what God does. That's his grace. That which he gives us that we don't deserve. That's grace. It's a gift. But then there's also our part, and that is faith. They're both gifts. Paul said, you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourself. It, salvation, grace and faith, is the gift of God, not by works, lest anyone should boast. 
So let's end this way. I want to talk a little bit about now Christianity and other faiths. As I said before, the list of world religions is really long. People have always searched for meaning and answers to life's problems. Um, The greatest problem, uh, although largely unrecognized by people, being our sin. They've always looked for it in religion or in a belief system of some kind. So they make one up or they join one that follows the path of least resistance because it makes them feel good. But it ultimately leads to nowhere. It provides no true comfort, does not resolve the problem of sin, which is our greatest problem. Our greatest problem is not our bank account. It's not the healthcare system. It's not the education system. It is sin. It is. That's the core. And all of this searching, searching just perpetuates the search for more truth. Religion is mankind always trying to reach for God, to please God, to pursue God, small g. Instead of accepting and believing in the God who does not sit idly by while we struggle, but initiates our search and our rescue by reaching down to us, by pursuing us, by drawing us in through the person of Jesus Christ. You see, all of the things that people believe and the reason they believe those things and all of the things that people are searching for ultimately can be found and they can be answered in Christ. They can. In fact, this is what Paul did when he went to Athens, that city, that polytheistic city that had so many idols and he went around the city and he looked and he even found one that had an inscription to the unknown God. They were just covering their bases in case they just missed one. And so Paul said, hey, you guys, I can see that in every way you are very religious. You even have an idol here to an unknown God. So what is unknown to you, I now declare. And he talks to them about the person of Jesus Christ, what he did. And you know how he ends? He talked about the fact that Jesus died for them and that he was raised again to life. And when people heard the resurrection, some of them sneered and said, no, 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 this guy, no. Others said, okay, we want to hear more. Others believed. And here's the reason why Christianity is the only way. What makes it exclusive, proprietary, different than other religions is this. It is the death and particularly the resurrection of Jesus Christ. No other religion, no other faith, no other leader can claim to have given himself or herself voluntarily over to death to pay for sin nor did they rise from the dead, nor did they ascend to heaven, which, by the way, there is lots of evidence for. None but Jesus. And I wish I had time this morning to take you even through the book of Acts, where Jesus is declared as the only way, and show you how every time without exception it is always linked to the death and the resurrection of Christ. In fact, the apostles... uh, Judas, remember when he died? Jesus had ascended to heaven already after his resurrection. Judas was gone. He killed himself for for being a traitor, for betraying Jesus. And the apostle says, we have to replace him. And they found two suitable candidates. And you know what had to be the distinguishing mark to be an apostle? Was they had to have witnessed the resurrection because Christianity is built on that. So in conclusion this morning, I want to say three things. Number one, 
How do we apply this? We need to trumpet the exclusivity and the distinctiveness of Christianity. We need to stay true to it. It is not arrogant to say that it is right. Christianity is a faith, a belief system that we can hold on to without compromise. What would you do if you held in your hand a medicine that you knew would heal that person's cancer? It is the way. This is it. Would you hold on to it and say, well, you know, maybe there's other ways. Uh, I don't know if I should really present this. Are you crazy? You would give it to them and say, take it. And we need to do that with Christ. We need to do that with Christianity. Anybody ever heard of uh, uh, HOG? H-O-G? It's the Harley Owners Group. Now, to be a member of the Harley Owners Group, you have to own a Harley. It says that right on their membership rules on their website. You can't be part of the club unless you have a Harley Davidson motorcycle. I ride motorcycle, by the way. Then, this is so disappointing to me. You go to the Goldwing Road Riders Association and they have associate membership. So you don't even need to ride a Goldwing to be part of their club. I think it's wrong. <laughs> if you say that you are the Goldwing Riders Association, then own a Goldwing to ride with them. Otherwise, go join the Yamahas and the Hondas and all of those guys. By the way, I have a Yamaha and a Goldwing. <laughs> now, three areas in particular about staying true to the exclusivity of Christ. Christianity. Number one, we need to maintain a very high view of Christ. We need to stay true to the, his virgin birth, his sinless life, his humanity, his deity, the penal substitutionary atoning death of Christ, his resurrection, and his ascension. We have to hold on to those, friends. Don't let them go. We also need to hold on to the authority of the scriptures. We've got to get back to that saying that says, be people of the book. Be people of the book. And third, we need to take the path of peace to enter into dialogue with people with gentleness and respect and not use arm twisting or violence to get our point across. It's unacceptable. Okay? Second point of application is this. Trust Christ. My question for you this morning, is your knowledge of God propositional based on a set of truths or is it personal? should be both. John the Baptist had doubts if Christ was the only one. Jesus responded, we'll make a decision on based on what you see. Taste and see that the Lord is good, Scripture says. Joshua the forerunner to Christ, Yeshua, back in the Old Testament, he called the people to choose this day whom you will serve. And you know what? Before that, he gave 13 verses of history. Why? Because look at what God has done. Look what he did there. Look at the miracle he performed there. Look at what he did for you there. Now, okay, now choose. Do you want to follow those gods, those idols of the Amorites? Or do you want to serve the living God? Make a choice. Sit in the chair. Sit in the chair. Pascal said, In faith, there is enough light for those who want to believe and enough shadows to blind those who don't. And my call for you this morning is if you doubt, to step out of those shadows. Come into the light. Sit in, sit in the chair. 
and personally put your trust in Jesus Christ. You know, in Matthew, Jesus said to people early on when he's declaring the kingdom of God, he said, ask and you shall receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. And he followed that up by saying, you know what? Enter through the narrow gate. Yes, Christianity is narrow. That's what Jesus said. Broad is the gate and wide is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But no, choose the narrow gate that leads to life. Pascal put a wager before people and he essentially said this, believe in God. If you're wrong, you've lost nothing. If you're right, you've gained everything. And when people, you know, that I talk to um, that have a hard time being convinced about Christ, I say to them, similar to Pascal, but I say to people, look, if you're right, and you say that all religions, all paths, everything leads to heaven, and I'm wrong, that it, Jesus is the only way that the scripture is wrong, then ultimately really we're both okay because then Christ is just one of those ways. But let's say for a minute that scripture is right and that my position is right and that Jesus is only, the only way and you're, and you're wrong. If that's the case, then one of us is in deep, deep trouble and it's not me. Because Jesus said that apart from faith in him, we will not be saved. He will not raise us up at the last day and we will not have eternal life. There is great danger and there is great peril in not believing that Jesus is the only way. Let's pray together. <sighs> Father, I just want to thank you so much today for your word. I want to thank you that you presented so clearly that you gave us Jesus, gracious, loving God, who loved us so much that he would be willing to sacrifice himself on our behalf, make a way possible to have eternal life, to set us free, to give us life. So we celebrate that, and I declare you, Lord, in this place today to be the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.